This is the Saddler's Post, conversations on horses, leather trade, and the art of saddlery, with our host, Christian Love. Today on the Saddler's Post podcast, we are very excited to have Lisa and Lauren Skyhorse of Skyhorse Saddles joining us, a husband and wife team who are absolutely at the top of the saddle making game. And uh, Lauren and Lisa, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Saddler's Post. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. So, when you know, the whole premise of the podcast is to promote, support, celebrate the leather trade. I'm biased. I like to talk to saddle makers. Um, but you know, it's so much fun, you know, when you're researching and digging into the industry. And for me, it's important that I'm finding people with a purpose and a unique story. And I, I, you know, you guys really struck me as, um, not only do you produce incredible work, but you've also, you know, as a couple, it kind of is unique because you're both saddle makers. And also that the outreach program to me, I, I really want to touch on that quite a bit uh, early on in the podcast because I'm so excited to hear about it. But um, tell me a little bit about how you met. I mean, were you saddle makers that happened to get married or did you know how how did it what's the very seed that started this relationship okay this the seed is that um lisa was a saddle maker first she uh put herself through ucla art school doing leather work on the streets of la and she was a horsewoman and bought a horse and moved to the country in northern california and then uh apprenticed found a man who would apprentice her as a saddle maker and opened a shop but when she did that i was also doing uh, biological work in the field and at that time i was using horses for my work so i was a horseman a young horseman and i would come into the saddle shop and meet with lisa and she would uh, either tutor me with uh repairs that had to be done or whatever. And then after a period of time, we uh, decided we liked each other and dated and ended up getting married. When we did, then I joined her ranks as a saddle maker. And together we have done this for 47 years, totally without employees, only the two of us. And we have done over a thousand saddles in that period of time. So I've been a saddle maker for 50 years and Lauren has only been doing it for 47 years. So <laughs> he's, uh, he's my apprentice, but he's doing really, really well. Oh, that that's super. You're very generous for taking him on. <laughs> I, so <laughs> now I don't like to, to touch on gender stuff too much. I hope we've moved on from it. But if I take my, I was born in 1970. So you've been doing this as long as basically I've been alive. And mm-hmm. mentality 
I don't I don't know about the West. I'm I'm not from there. But you know, was there a lot of pushback on a female uh, saddle maker? Because it, it can be a bit gender. Like you know, saddle making is a man's job, and 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 you know, women do the the head stalls, right? Was that the mentality I when you started? Yeah, I think it's a good question, and I think it's very very relevant um, because it it still is um, an issue, but luckily things have gotten hugely better in the last fifty years. 50 years ago, it was so good old boy that uh, when I was looking for a saddle maker to apprentice, there was three saddlers that literally just rejected me and um, wouldn't even think of teaching me. And luckily, I came across Lawrence DeWitt up in Eugene, Oregon, and uh, he took me on. Well, first he said, you can work in the saddle shop for a week. And uh, if it looks like that we can work together and get along and you have potential, then I will take you in. And um, this man was an awesome. He was a cowboy saddle maker and a rodeo cowboy. But he was a magnificent craftsman and turned out to be such a wonderful man and such a mentor in my life. Um, now I'm happy to say things are enormously better for women saddle makers. Um, but still, there are many, many, many times when people will, you know, just assume that Lauren is the saddle maker. And, uh, you know, they'll ask him how he learned it and if I helped him and, um, so it, it's still happening, but it's improved enormously in the last fifty years. I'm I'm glad to hear that. I I I get so frustrated when I hear that just purely based that on that you're a female that they would just assume naturally that the story unfolded that you know Lauren had started and you know brought you in type of thing and i'm I'm just think that's a great story the way it unfolded um well it is it is a a wonderful partnership if somebody wants to think that lauren is the saddle maker and i'm the tooler it's okay with us at this point but um so it is a good partnership that there are both of us doing it and i mean after decades of doing it you you so clearly don't have to prove you know if somebody wants to make some assumptions or you know their ignorance is their downfall right I mean you're producing some incredible stuff it speaks for itself and you know it's you know for me what I like to to dig into with 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 a maker or makers is you know the production of a saddle though i'm 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 interested is each saddle a collaboration between the two of you as in hey i'll do all the prep work you do the stitching like machining um then i take it and do you know you know whatever technique or you know i guess it would depend on 
what the customer has asked for? And I guess you have different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah, I'm really glad you uh, delved into it like that because here's the way that works in our shop. And the truth is we have a huge advantage over a single person or a multiple person shop where they uh, maybe one person does all the tooling, one person does all the stitching, one person does all the cutting, so forth, uh, like semi a factory. So where we are is we're still a mom and pop shop, but we do have division of labor. And it's good that you brought this up because the division of labor is Lisa is the principal designer. I'm also the critic, you know, so she gets me involved in uh, what do you think about this tooling pattern? Where should these flowers go? Where should this whatever go? And I go, yeah, I don't know. I think I'd move it over there. Or I'm thinking down the road of how am I going to stitch the edge or how am I going to oil this so that it looks like uh, the product that we want it to look. And so that I, she allows me to add my two cents to the design. But she is the principal designer. She's the artist, and she does 50% of the actual labor of building the saddle. I do the other 50%. So the way we divide the labor is mostly I do the cutting and the stitching, and I do a lot of the oiling and color at the end. Mostly Lisa does the design and everything that goes into the groundwork, which is where a person sits and how a saddle rides. And then we combine her information to my information. And yes, we do share every saddle. We share both of our hands in every saddle. But I don't know if I made that clear. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, we also have a, a division of labor. Um, I do the groundwork, the fork cover the horn cancel binding and all the tooling i do the seat piece also lauren does the skirts and the rigging and the fenders and the stirrups and he does all i do the painting i didn't know how much oh. detail he wanted to hear yeah well, <laughs> i do the painting but lauren does all the oiling and antiquing and assembly. It was called final color and assembly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is. Imp- so we have, we have specialized um, parts of the saddle, and we usually have two saddles going at once. So while I'm doing one part, he's doing his part on another saddle. Well, once again, to make it clear, over over 1,100 saddles without employees in 40 plus years. Well nearly 50 years, Lisa and I have shared every saddle that's been produced and handed to a client. I, to me, you know, saddlers, artists, it, it comes up often, um, you know, legacy, like what's the legacy and like, you know, if your story was just ended here, like if it, if, if we're just talking about husband and wife team they make beautiful saddles and they're, you know, your, your motto, two people, four hands, you know, you've, you've crafted a saddle together, uh, with pride and love and attention to detail. That's amazing in itself. 
Um, and we, we can circle back to production things and, and everything, but I, I said I wanted to touch on it early on, is how do we get as a couple running a business, which is a, it's a capital enterprise, you're, you're, you know, you're trying to put food on your table and, 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 and create uh, an income so you can follow your dreams and passion, to, to your outreach program where it's very clear that isn't about marketing or money or anything. Can you, can you tell me what the outreach program is and, and, and then why? You know, what, what a great question. Thank you. I think the why, um, the, the philosophical reason behind the why is that um, a person's life can be divided into thirds. And the first two thirds is growing up, acquiring a skill, raising a family, um, putting food on the table. And then the last third of a person's life, which <laughs> sadly or happily we're, we're in our last third of our life, is when we can branch out and look at the rest of the world and try and pass on our knowledge and our experience. And along with that, the fact that we are both horse people and... Um, I mean, we've never been without horses. It's our passion. It's our hobby. And um, so luckily, it has allowed us to go into other cultures, be it domestically or internationally, learn about them and teach them about us because the cowboy culture is so is so popular and so famous and so romantic around the world around the world altai mountains Mm -hmm. mongolia peru um that um that that has been just a wonderful gift to us and to the people that we can work with she said altai mountains uh so to to do your research that's southern russia where Mongolia and China and Kazakhstan touch Russia, that's the Altai Mountains. It's an incredible horse culture there. Actually, the horse culture began as the Scythians, who were the very first horsemen. So between the Scythians and the Mongolians, it gave us such a beautiful um, in to for us to experience nomadic horse cultures. And for them, as the horsemen and saddle makers that they are, we got to exchange knowledge. We got to bring all kinds of tools. They always made their own tools. So when we brought swivel knives and and stamps and things that are quite evolved in the United Run, yeah. specialized and and. Uh, pretty evolved in the United States. Um, oh, they just loved it. And, um, and, and other cultures we got to experience too. Like in Peru, we thought we were working with the Equitarian Initiative, which is veterinarians. And we thought we were going to work with people in the different villages on, um, on saddle making. But it turns out they needed help fitting their saddles. 
also we figured out how to customize saddle blankets so that uh, the horses weren't wounded with these ill-fitting saddles. So it's been our pleasure to be able to experience all these other cultures in a way that is meaningful for us and meaningful for them. Yeah, that's it's, uh, lovely that you feel it's important to pass on the knowledge, especially um, saddle fitting was a particular area of special to me, specialty to me for a long time. That's kind of how I, I came into saddle making through being a saddle fitter slash seller first and realizing like, okay, I, I really need to learn more about saddle construction to be good at this. And then slowly the passion for making takes over. But when you see, um, you know, uh, horse cultures that, um, you know, when in North America in particular, we're kind of spoiled in that we can, um, you know, we have so much at our fingertips, you know, uh, as far as choice of saddlers and we can have it as pretty as we want or as plain as we want. And then you go to a culture where they're actually using a horse as a way of, you know, getting something to marketplace. So it's, it's a economic importance to them and a horse with a, say a saddle sore or a lameness caused simply because the equipment doesn't fit right. Um, and is so preventable and that you're willing to share that and help them. It's, it's kind of life changing for the animal, but also the economics of that family. Yeah, so Christian, so you really appreciate this, and I, um, you gave me more information about yourself that I didn't know. In fact, what we did is we we found that there was a very localized cotton a blanket that they made that was very inexpensive and easy for the people to use as a blanket on a bed. Let's say we showed them how to roll it twice on each end and triplicate it in a way that we could make a pouch. And in that pouch, they could add any kind of filler they wanted. It could be watered up newspaper. It could be, uh, I don't know, torn torn blankets, whatever they could find, and they could stuff it. And by doing that and laying that blanket over the horse's back that's rolled up on each end, they could elevate the saddle so that the saddle did not hit the spine of the horse because the spine of the horse, flaco is the actual term, Spanish term meaning very thin or very, or skinny. They could elevate the saddle so that it did not cause saddle sores on the spine anymore. And once they saw it, they were like, they just glowed. They just went, oh, I get it because they kept padding from the spine up to the saddle thinking they were going to change the saddle sore, and it didn't. What you have to do is elevate it from the sides. Yep. So I think you get that from what you just said. Oh, uh, the other uh, yeah, 100%. great part about this project was that, um, well, we had we bring all the materials and all the tools, and then we just leave them with whoever we're working with, and we had originally thought we were going to work with this woman's co-op, you know, to make – 
great things that they could market. Um, and instead, we ended up working with this woman's co-op to make all these saddle blankets so that all the people in the villages could um, could fix their horses. Yeah, not only do they have a, a tool that's, you know, that I, a corrective saddle pad, I call it, is, is, a, is a fitting tool, but you've also gave them the knowledge on how to use it so that each saddle horse combination is a, a new variable sometimes. So hopefully they start building on those skills going, ah, in this case, I'm going to pad more here and less there. Um, I can imagine that they, once they have the basic concepts, they'll start building on that. Yeah, you're exactly right. And like I said, they just lit up when they saw the difference between over padding from spine up the saddle and then creating space between the spine and the saddle. That was two different ways of looking at how you fit a horse or yeah. a mule or a donkey or an equine of some kind. And you're exactly right. These animals were very valuable to them. They needed these these animals to get their goods to market or move their goods across the mountains. And we were at fourteen and 15,000 feet in the Andes. I mean, these are high mountain villages. Yeah. Even and the, ha- other, the other way that saddle fit translated was that um, in Siberia and the Altai Mountains, they when we first met them because we were there twice uh and then once two of the saddle makers came here and worked with us in our shop and when we first got there they were making their own trees out of um like railroad ties you know the bars of the tree were completely flat and um after we had been there and they had been here and they took some trees home they started sculpting the bars of their saddles and uh, the fit was way way better nice i always uh used to tell clients you know saddle fitting is the general term what i'm really doing is tree fitting the rest any any idiot can do (laughs) it's selecting the correct tree but the problem is you have to have you know kind of uh, in-depth or understanding of the construction of a saddle to do it that way so essentially fitting the saddle from the uh, inside out so that's that's so cool that you're sharing that and I'm sure as a culture they they don't have this mentality of all just order one or I'll get a new one or, you know, they, they need solutions that they can actually execute themselves. Right. Right. Because they have dozens of horses and something has to fit everything. Um, which leads us to another basic saddle principle, which is, you know, if you have a good all around fitting saddle, you don't need a separate saddle for each horse. You just need to know how to pad your saddle properly. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I used to call the saddles the the 8 out of 10 saddle. It's not going to fit 10 out of 10 horses, uh, but every farm should have an 8 out of 10 that <clears throat> on some horses it'll be a 6, On you know, as far as it's an okay fit. It's not going to be, but you need, you need something that's uh, 
paddable because you you can't pad up a wrong fit period right you're yeah. it's a it's a losing um game but if you've got something i i agree like a good general um fit and that that kind of leads me on to my next thing uh that i really wanted to touch on was the uh skyrider so you kind of you've kind of described your skyrider uh by by talking about general fit haven't you Yes, I mean you you led right into it and I was about to tell you that at some point you and I have to have a conversation about what makes uh, a saddle fit generally more horses today uh, in the pleasure horse market. And I believe that we have landed on something that is instrumental in that and it's it's not just bar width, it's bar angle. And the thing is, for 40 years, you know, we've been doing this for 50 years, but for 40 years, no one has changed. I mean, no one. What I mean is general saddle makers or saddle companies still go with the old adage that a 90 or 91 degree bar angle is appropriate for horses because 100 years ago, it, the military horses were uh, thoroughbred type horses and a 90-degree bar angle worked very well on them. And so saddle tree companies and saddle makers stayed with that configuration. But over 20 years ago, Lisa and I decided we need to flatten out the angle on the bars because the pleasure horses today, they're in better flesh. We feed them differently. We have different uses for them. It doesn't matter whether it's a fox trotter or a... Uh, uh, a quarter horse or a Tennessee walker, whatever it is, the pleasure horses have more broad musculature and more fat, if you want to call it fat, in their shoulder area. So we have changed the bar angle to 93 degrees. It has made a huge difference, and that reflects Skyrider. Skyrider, as well as our custom saddles, have a 93-degree bar angle in them which means that the lower edge of the bar is a little bit wider than standard. It allows the saddle to sit down on the longitudinal muscle of the horse and allows not only for the saddle to fit better and be more comfortable for the horse, but a better ride for the rider because it's not elevated and tippy and riding on the edges of the bars. Yeah. Sorry, this is a long conversation. I could go on and on about no. how this works. But verbally, that's the best that I can yeah. do right now. <laughs> I am I am unapologetic for the the this podcast. It's it's about leather. It's about saddles. It's about saddle makers. It's called the Saddler's Post. I don't I don't care if it's only five people interested in this. This is the conversations that need to be had, and I don't want guests on here who are about marketing. Um you know like i make the best damn saddles in the world blah 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 and i i don't care i you know i can tell that you know reading the description of the skyrider you know you guys have had an honest you know look and you can see a shift happening and you knew that you had to open it 2 degrees right like it wasn't um a marketing thing it was 
we open this up two degrees, it's going to reflect the anatomy of the modern day horse of the majority of clients we're seeing. Well, no, you're exactly right. I mean, I do use it as a selling point, of course, because I think it's very important. I ride a Skyrider saddle, personally. Um, I have three different breeds of horses on my place, and it works well with my young uh, Mustang and also my older Foxtrotter. The point is that a lot of people are reluctant to, a lot of people, a lot of tree makers or saddle makers are reluctant to go away from grandpa's measurements. But, you know, grandpa's measurements from 1920 don't work on the modern horses today. So I'm a more modern person, and I looked at the, the shape of these horses, and once I saw that this angle of the barge helped these horses so well that I started uh, adopting that. So here is like a measurement that you can look at that is very critical. If you take a conventional saddle tree at 90 degrees and you put it on a bench without it, it's not in a saddle, it's just on the bench, and you measure between the lower edges of the bar, that's the part that's first going to contact the horse if you ignore the skirts. It's only going to measure 13 inches from edge to edge. If you take a 93-degree bar set, it'll measure 14 inches. So you see that one-inch difference there makes a huge, makes a huge difference. Yeah. We've also widened the bar spread a little bit. As you know, it doesn't take much to make a big difference, and. Um, and of course, we have an eight-inch gullet, but what it does what, what, is what that means. Let me clarify that eight is high, which oh. means you have a lot of clearance in the gullet. It means in the very back of the gullet, where there's wither, you have a five and a half to six-inch clearance. So we clear the withers always. Nice. But we wanted to air. We wanted stay within the um, the measurements of. Uh, we want the widest normal measurement so that people do have the option to pad up if they need to. But as you know, you can't put a narrow saddle on a wide horse, but you could put a little bit wider tree on a narrower horse and just pad it up a little bit. And we always... And pad, and pad it thicker. Well, well, well right. said, Lisa. So yeah. we always liken it to your shoes. If you're... If you're between sizes, you want to get a little bit bigger half size of a shoe because you can always wear a thinner sock. Thicker sock. Thicker sock. Yes. <laughs> but if you uh, if you buy a shoe that is too narrow, it doesn't matter what kind of sock you wear. You can't do a thick sock thinking it'll make it more comfortable. And um, that's pretty much our theory on generally speaking saddle fit and to go along with that design did you also find that you had to change rigging location i'm not i'm not i'm not 100 you know rigging location is really interesting and i mean that's a critical part and someone less uh educated than you wouldn't even understand that but in fact Rigging position is critical. 
Because are you pushing the saddle up on the shoulder or are you letting the saddle drive or lay too far behind the shoulder? And in fact, the Sky Rider saddle, because it's what's called a double latigo rig, meaning that there's a latigo on the left side and a latigo on the right side, on side, off side, you can actually rig it three different ways and that moves the saddle into three different places on the horse's back. That is critical. You're exactly right. The the other great thing about the Skyrider rigging is that it's an all-leather rigging. So the skirts are a little bit longer in the front where you you would tie your latigo. Longer, she means deeper deeper, towards towards the girth. And it hugs your horse. So there's no metal against your horse and there's no metal between the horse and rider and which is another important part is that the skirts underneath the rider's leg and thigh are cut way up so you've got a super close contact fit which is close contact rider to horse is right what she means. Yeah. right so there's all kinds of things in play here but this all leather rigging with three different rigging options is definitely crucial I love it. I'm I'm glad I asked that and you had a chance to speak to it because, again, as a saddle fitter, I never looked at many Western saddles and I was always reluctant out of respect to Western saddle makers because me dealing, you know, on the English side, the people who are most interested in talking about saddle fit tend to be dressage riders with wolf-locked saddles. So they're kind of obsessive about it. But on the western side you know the common thing is is where you know the attachment you know whether it's billets or rigging and that location because a lot of times i'm failing a saddle or suggesting that they should find another saddle it's purely based on what that location is how it's distorting the fit and interfering with the horse's shoulder or causing um lumbar like lower back issues um but the actual well, fit to the horse you could say like yeah it's not it's not bridging it's not rocking it's not pinching it's not doing anything except it's not going to stay where you think it's going to stay yeah. okay so this is very interesting christian so lisa and i went to england in the 80s and we learned to make english saddles so we understand what an English saddle is all about and where it should be placed on a horse's back and et cetera. Here's the thing about Skyrider, which is very interesting. Not only is it a supple leather rigging, but it's set lower than most conventional Western rigging. So what it's doing, it's mimicking the billets on an English saddle. So when you think about it, an English saddle has long billets and a short girth. Why is that? The billets, the three billets, are going around the horse's heart line, and they're beginning to wrap around before you tighten up the girth. In other words, the security is not how hard you pull down on the billet or in a Western saddle, not how hard you pull down on the latigo, but the fact that the skirt, or in the case of an English saddle, the billets, begin to wrap the contour of the horse. So Skyrider is doing the same thing. The skirt is a little bit lower in the front where the rigging 
slot is so that when you draw up the latigo, you're wrapping around the heart line and you're not pulling straight down and having to over tighten it and you're getting the security without a tight latigo. Yeah. The other Does that make sense? I don't know if that made sense. It makes sense to me. The other thing that yeah. our, our saddles um, do, our customs as well as the Skyriders, is that um, in a traditional old-style Western saddle, you have so much leather underneath the rider's thigh and leg Um that you've lost a lot of the contact. And this, of course, is one of the main criticisms of people that that don't really ride Western. And they've tried a few Western saddles, and there's just too much leather under your leg. Um, even our custom Western saddles, the skirts are a little bit deeper where the rigging is, but then they're cut way up under your thigh and under your knee. So you have, a, and they're in the skirt. The rigging is in the skirt, fortified with a piece of biothane. And um, they make it so that you, the rider has very close contact with the horse as well as it makes it a, a lighter weight saddle. Our sky riders are only 24 pounds, and that's cinch, stirrups, latigos, ready to ride, but it's a full-strength Western saddle. That's amazing. That's, I think the weight issue, it's funny to me um, from it coming from the English world, and occasionally I'll be asked about a Western saddle, and you go to throw it on a horse's back, and I ended up, hitting the horse in the side of his flank because I, you know, like, yeah. you know, I forgot to take a run at, uh, <laughs> that's like throwing hay bales well, sometimes. That's, that's pretty typical of, you know, the older Western saddles or some of the real, uh, ranch type saddles, our saddles, our customs and our sky riders. One of the other things we've done is with our trees, they are handmade wooden trees. They're covered with fiberglass instead of uh, rawhide, and that makes them sleeker and lighter weight, but just as strong as a rawhide-covered tree and actually a little more durable because it's all one piece that's covering the tree. You don't have the holes that expose the wooden tree where they sew the rawhide on. So it makes it stronger, lighter, and um, our, even our full-strength Western saddles are only about 30 pounds, sometimes in the low 30s if it's a, an extra beefy yeah. working saddle. So I'm so happy with the Skyrider. And the one thing, I, I don't typically talk about money or price or or anything, but if I understand your website correctly, you've made the Skyrider really, really um, within reach of most people. Is that correct? Yeah, the Skyriders are $3,500, and that's for a full-strength, handmade Western saddle, all real materials. We don't use any synthetics. Well, we do fortify the 
leather rigging with biofane, but it's yeah. real sheepskin. It's a handmade tree, the same that we use in our customs. And what allows us to be more economical is that the Skyriders are a more standardized saddle. They come in three sizes, three colors. Um, you don't have every single option that you do on a custom saddle, yeah. but you still have quite a few options and we can personalize them. But because they're more standardized, um, we can be, uh, we can have a more competitive price. Yeah, and again, I think it speaks to who you guys are as a couple. That, that, like when I, I'm not fully versed on on what saddles are costing, but you know, I know that in that price range, someone can be going to a tax store and buying an off the rack saddle for about that much with no expert help or little, and it's it's doesn't contain any of the features that you guys are talking about. So yeah, and that's also a wholesale retail markup as well. And it's someone representing the saddle who really doesn't know very much about the saddle. Yeah. I'm kind of hard on the industry in that again, on unapologetic sometimes with, you know, I was one of those people. I, I grew up riding, but I didn't know anything about tack or saddles. And then when I wanted to, desperately stay in the industry i knew you know it's it's like oh, okay i'll start working in tax stores and then gravitate towards the saddles and then you realize that anyone can sell a saddle with zero qualifications no knowledge really of saddles except that your credential is you know i used to get asked all the time well, well do you ride and i'm like you know your question should be to me did i ride well you know, because all of us have ridden and, you know, you only need to stand around at a warm up ring at any show, whether it's no matter what discipline. And there's probably 0.1% of the people that you're going, ah, I like that rider, but the rest are crap, right? Like, and it's, it's like, that's the question is what kind of knowledge, what are my standards? You know what are what, you know what are my understanding of horses and the equipment that's going on it? Um, those are the real questions. Not do I ride or not. I mean, loads of people ride and don't understand horses. Period. Let alone saddles. You know, you've made a really good point actually that I want to address, and that is, Lisa and I have been horsemen our whole lives since we were in our early twenties, and uh, we're seventy-three years old. And the fact is that, oh, I lost my train of thought. Uh, what was I going to say about that? Um, Just about knowledge and, and horsemanship. Yeah. Uh, it has to do with the fact that we build our saddles to ride in what's called a military or formal seat. Even our Western saddles, our stirrups are hung in a place where you can actually sit upright and ride in a military or formal seat versus this kind of uh, slouched uh, attitude in a Western saddle. So English saddle riders, they think that Western saddle riders ride very slouched, like being on a motorcycle or something like that. And And we sell our work to a lot of people who are competent horse people, and uh, they have the experience of being 
a formal or military style rider in an English saddle, but now they want a really nice uh, Western saddle, a pleasure saddle they can ride on the trail so they have more more security, more saddle under them than an English saddle. And so one of our selling points, frankly, is sit in the saddle and see how balanced you are. Look where your heel and your hip and your shoulder and your ear is. You know, you're in alignment. You are riding a really formally balanced saddle, even though it's a Western saddle. Yep. So and actually, that's we a good sell, point. We sell quite a few saddles, especially sky, uh, sky riders, to English riders, dressage riders. Uh, two things. One is cowboy dressages now is now getting pretty big, so you want a balanced saddle. But also to an English uh, an English rider that also wants to do some trail work just to give their horses a break. So you've got the strength and the security of a Western saddle without the book. And the other thing about um, saddle fit, it's a little bit subtle, but you can have the best fitting saddle in the whole world if the rider's not balanced and comfortable and he's leaning to one side or or bouncing around in his saddle or slouching, um, that saddle's still not going to necessarily be comfortable on your horse. So there's all kinds of different subtle things to consider when you are talking about keeping your horse comfortable. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's, it is true. There is a lot of bias. I think from the English world, they, they do assume, I mean, that that chair seat people sitting on their pockets slouched um kind of thing you you would it, it just seems like oh that's that's western <laughs> and i i, I kind, yeah. kind of keep you know thinking of back to historically um that military uh no one would have been allowed to sit like that and no horse could have been under the conditions it was in or no no cavalryman could have ridden for hours and hours out of time in that in that position either you'd just be exhausted trying to keep your balance your horse would be sore um you know just from all that poor posture so it it only makes sense that you know you should be sitting you know in alignment in in a correct seat Right, and that's how our stirrups, our fenders are hung, but also where the fenders go around the tree, that stirrup slot is cut way forward so that if you want to, you know, if you're going up or down something steep and you want to change your leg position, you have that option. But if the fender is just hanging normally and naturally, it's hanging straight down. Nice. So one other thing that jumped at me, and I correct me if I'm wrong, but you haven't, like with the Skyrider, you have, but it's not, you do, you have worked on, built saddles on many, many, many different styles of trees. Like it's, it seems your custom work can get very um, varied, (laughs) if I can speak like that. Is that you know most saddlers or 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 makers i think they to make their life simple they've 
they've gravitated towards now oh, just use this tree whereas in your custom work oh, we, it's wide open right that's exactly right when you order a custom saddle you have every single option of not only the tree configuration uh the type of skirts the rigging the position um but aesthetically too we have done everything from uh, a saddle with beavers on it to uh, <laughs> uh, to Florida animals to classic. Right now we're doing one that's just a classic floral design. Feathers are kind of our trademark, but um, you have every single option that you want on our custom saddle. We're actually doing one as well right now. It's halfway done, which has uh, Navajo Indian blankets design in it but to go back to your question or your comment it's very true that we have never ever produced a catalog that says we have five tooling patterns three colors uh you know eight different tree styles blah 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 and add them all up and put it together we have always said what do you want to ride we can build it for you so it, it doesn't matter to us whether it's a uh, a roping horn on on a on a bowman tree or a wade style saddle with a cutting horn. If that's what the client wants, that's what they get. The other thing about our saddles that it certainly doesn't speak to the fit of the saddle, but the fact that our saddles have an elegant look is a bonus it's like driving a car you know do you want a car that looks really nice i mean of course you want a car that works well but it you also want a car that looks nice you want shoes that look nice and a purse that looks nice so people think oh my god these are too beautiful i can't ride this but the truth is um they are not too beautiful to ride. It only adds to your aesthetic experience. And because, especially Western saddles, um, they're built to, to go at least 100 years. So these are not only tools that are really important, but they're also heirlooms that you can pass down for generations. Yeah. Oh, I, I encourage people to go to your website and we'll definitely put links to that um, when we launch the podcast. But the the work is is stunning, and the reason I wanted to you know spend so much time talking about the Skyrider because I felt that you know that's a you know a saddle for the people. But you can also you know when someone wants something so bespoke, and you're you guys are artists as well as you know and everything is functional and beautiful and not just beautiful tooling but you, you know the patterns which i'm always in awe of i'm a absolute lousy pattern maker so always always have a time making things look like they belong together and flow and so when i see nice patterns i always make sure that people know i know that you know what you're doing <laughs> Because I don't, <laughs> you know, I know how hard hey, it is. You're, you're speaking my language. You know, I'm a pattern maker too. So I love that part. Thank you for that. Because yeah. you're exactly right. The patterns are really important. And 
the balance, if you want to call it quote unquote balance of our work is beautiful. You know, we don't put square skirts on a round front or whatever, you know, we balance our patterns and uh, I'm really glad that you saw that. That's cool. Actually, we've had quite a few apprentices in our career and um, one of the things I talk about with them aesthetically is that not only do the lines of the of each piece have to match, but you know if you're cutting out a skirt and it's got a beautiful curve in it and you've got a little bump in that curve, your eye is going to catch on it and maybe you won't recognize that your eye has caught on that little bump, but it won't be as pleasing as if all your lines are smooth. And I think that that kind of attention to detail also speaks to the overall quality and workmanship of our saddles. Yeah. Uh, well, as I say, people need to, to check out your the images you have, um, and they'll hopefully they recognize it and see it, um, that, it's, that it's not just beautiful tooling. Um, but that it's, you know, the patterns are, are incredible. Now, the second or third, fourth thing that caught me was some of like the, uh, compadre, there was other models too, but the compadre kind of was, um, spoke to me the most, maybe I'm the son of a cabinet maker, so (laughs) it probably, um, was was the wood but each there's certain saddles in your collection that are also shows that you're completely aware and you understand the historical importance of that saddle like i i think you know you you speak about being modern but at the same time you've shown that you you know that you know modern America didn't invent the riding horse after the second world war. There was a long, long history of, of horsemanship and, you know, styles of saddles, whether it's Spanish or, you know, and you, you seem to have captured that beautifully. Are, are you also historians? I wouldn't say we're historians, but Um, I was trained in a very classic, old-style cowboy saddle, and um, to this day, I think they're just classic and stunning, and I love them, but I also think that for the, um, for the, to keep this tradition alive, we also have to modernize a little bit. So sometimes you see saddles and they're just the classic um, copies of the saddles that have been built for a hundred years. And much as I admire that traditional classic look, I also think that we have to change with the times. We have to keep this tradition alive. And um, the other thing about our saddles, because we were trained in the traditional uh, Western way, our saddles are very classically built. 
you know, we, we pay attention to the rigging position. We want the tree to be correct. Um, but the aesthetics of, of the design that we put on the leather, um, I think that the fact that we can span everything from classic and tradition like compadres into something like our saddles with feathers on it and Navajo silver, I think it keeps the tradition more viable. A very good example of that, if I may add, would be Edward Bolin himself. Edward Bolin, mm -hmm. in the 1930s through the 1960s, built all of those real fancy saddles that we saw the uh, big screen cowboys riding, and they were in the Rose Parade and so forth. Well, you know, saddles didn't look like that until Edward Bolin with 30 uh, silversmiths and 30 saddle makers started to produce those kinds of saddles. So in, in his day, he was like totally nouveau. He was like out of the box. He was like, who is this guy? He came from, I think, Sweden or someplace in Europe, and he started a saddle company in the United States. Now, the Bolin saddle is considered a classic well, here we are, Skyhorse. We're not as old as Bolin, and we do things that are very different, feathers and tapestry seats or Navajo woven seats and uh, silver braiding on the edges of our cantos, and everyone thinks, well, they're out of the box. But guess what? We're going to be classic at some point. Well, not only that, but oh, I agree. we started – carving saddles with feathers on it 30 years ago and i actually had somebody come up to me and go nobody is ever going to be able to ride a saddle like that in the show ring you know it's just too crazy and too out there and nowadays you barely see a western saddle in a catalog that doesn't have some kind of feathers <laughs> tooled on them yeah. so you know, trends change, and um, uh, uh, it, it's part of what we love to do. That said, we also make saddles like uh, we have a saddle you can see in on our website under collection saddles called Buckaroos, and it's got all kinds of classic Western carving on it, Western conchos, braiding on the skirts it's so beautiful and so handsome and and it's it's kind of a takeoff on a traditional cowboy saddle in an artsy way so I, like i said we love it all but structurally our saddles are very classic and very western and very traditional and strong yeah, no, that really comes through and in everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't look at anything of yours and see that it's oh, it's just for looking at. You know, um, I can see why people would be hesitant because, you know, it's like it drives my mother crazy that we don't use. You know, she gifted us for wedding. You know, the the fine china that's been in the family, and she's like use it and I'm, like, oh, I'm afraid of breaking one she says well i'm afraid of it sitting there and never being used so use it you know and it's 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 a plate eat off it you know and it's it's one of those things where it's you know to build a saddle 
and someone's hesitant to use it and enjoy it, you almost feel like, no, 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 that was not the intention. You know, I won't, we want it, you, you know, go and show it off and have some fun. Like you say, if you, if you've, if you've bought a, a really high end purse or some shoes or, you know, a, it'd be like a guy getting fitted for a sport coat and then never wear it because he didn't want to, you know, wear it out. Well, that said, um, we do have a, a, a number of saddles we call collection saddles, and most of them are in art collections or galleries, and, um, and they really are art pieces. But that said, it's also really important to us that because it's a saddle, even if it goes into an art collection, if somebody now or a hundred years from now wants to take it out and ride it in a parade or even rope a cow, it, they are all still functional pieces, even though some of them are also uh, collection pieces that are works of art. Yeah. And, and here's the interesting thing. When people come into our booths and they talk to us about our prices and the the look of our saddles and so forth my comment is always well uh think about this you just went to the dealership you know two weeks ago and you bought a truck for three times the cost of this saddle and it looked really pretty on the showroom floor showroom floor and then you drove it home through a mud puddle and threw a bunch of hay in the back of it and even though it's pretty and you spend a lot of money for it, it still works really good, doesn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, you know, perfect analogy. Perfect. You know, <laughs> and it's it's um, and it's interesting. I don't know. I've I've ran into two makers. Uh, one in harness. Uh, some young lads in in England, in northern England, they make harness. Um. And they had their fourth generation or something. And they told me, hand on their heart, their grandfather's harness at auction sells for more than they sell theirs new. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I'm thinking, and whoever bought that originally from your grandfather would have paid, you know, probably, you know, a fraction of that new. And it's, appreciating in value and um another guy was uh emor a, a calgary-based uh, saddle maker i think quite well known in western canada and i think when the his his saddles are a, a highly sought after item used but people just won't let them go which drives the price up even further when people do finally let them go so it, it's one of those things versus a truck that does, you know, depreciates. I think certain saddles um, don't necessarily depreciate as fast as other ones. I think, I think you guys are well in that territory. Well, thank you. We've, um, we've helped resell a number of our saddles um, and Pretty much, I would say, every single one sells for way more than the original uh, purchase price. Yep. I believe it. 100% I believe it. And, you know, the the customer wins 
you know the the value um is a little bit arbitrary for me it's it's something that you know how do you put a price on certain aspects of of saddles like you're telling me you have a you know to the rider oh i'm only willing to pay this much for the comfort of my horse it would be like saying you know i don't care if my kid has comfortable shoes and has to walk to school that's all i'm willing to spend well not only (laughs) not only that but you know we do come upon that people going whoa i I don't want to spend that much on a saddle you know my budget oh i don't want to spend six thousand dollars my budget was three thousand dollars and we're thinking huh you just spent 10 grand on your horse 60 grand on your truck a hundred thousand dollars on your barn and uh, yep. it, it would be like if you were a marathon runner and you went, oh, I, I only want to spend $50 on my shoes. I don't want to spend $100. Yeah. It's, like, it's one of the most important things you could possibly have. And you've just spent $200,000 on the truck, the trailer, and everything else. So yeah. the priorities sometimes are definitely askew. Yeah. The piece of equipment is between you and your horse. <laughs> yeah. I, that's so important. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what fascinated me with saddles. It's funny growing up, I never owned a new saddle. I always either borrowed a school saddle or um, I would buy the school saddle when the school was decommissioning them. So I was really riding in garbage sometimes. But uh, it is your, you know, and, and the stuff I'm, dealing with these days are you know some of the top brands in the world on the english side but it it still is the single most personal item because it's yeah you're sitting your butt in it but it's it's you know the right saddle you almost feel invincible right like it's you're centered you're secure on your horse you feel balanced it's it's an irreplaceable feeling that feeling of just feeling right there with your partner your equine partner i i agree with you there's nothing wrong with getting a good value in a saddle or anything else that you want to do which is your love like a good value on a road bike or a mountain bike or a good value on whatever you want to state on the other hand um you shouldn't um, shortchange yourself if your love is horses. And as Lisa pointed out, you've already spent $200,000 on your luxury, your horse luxury. You can't really skimp on the saddle. So <laughs> yep. um, that's what we kind of battle with all the time and try to explain to people in a nice way. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I think it's the same industry wide. You're, you're, constantly trying to educate the clients on the facts rather than marketing you know i have always had people approach me i just read an article that said you know this about this style of panel or that um you know they start asking very specific questions about trees and you're like well where where is this coming from because not you know you've read something or you've acquired knowledge somewhere but you have to be very very careful um 
because a lot of it is, you know, when you see who's published this article or written it, it's it's a completely biased um, thing that they're 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 selling it as education, but really it's it's um, it's a marketing tool wrapped in the disguise of of that. So it's it's always I think industry wide that you have to educate people on value it's the key word that i use all the time is like i don't care if it costs a thousand is your budget you know it's easier to get ripped off when you have a small budget i think sometimes or a really big budget um because sometimes you're you're just overpaying for not a lot of substance but the the lower end say used market you have to be really savvy and work with really good people who are showing you yeah that saddle is a thousand dollars used but it's worth a thousand or and it will still be worth a thousand in five years time because obviously the market keeps increasing um and and saddles i find good quality saddles only depreciate so far um so it's you know that's good value that you know when your daughter grows out of that and you need to sell it as she goes off to university or goes into a bigger saddle or a different horse that you're still going to get, you know, it costs you very little to own that saddle for a few years. I don't, I don't mean to be cavalier about how much saddles cost and our saddles cost because, you know, my first saddle was $200 and it was a, you know, it was a factory tech stand and that's all I can afford. But that said, um, we have a number of clients who come to us and they go, oh, you know, we just bought two different saddles that were half the price and because um, we were trying to save money and neither of them worked and neither of them were exactly what we wanted. And if we had just come bought the right saddle from a reputable, knowledgeable person right out of the gate, we would have still been money ahead no matter how much yeah. it cost. That, um, that's why I spend so much time telling people about value and what they should be paying attention to is value, not how much does it cost? <laughs> because it's almost irrelevant. Like you need to ride this horse. You know, if, if you're struggling to come up with another thousand dollars, I get it, but you're in an incredibly expensive sport where you know, you're just going to hemorrhage money in this industry, period. So, you know, at least buy something that is good value and will help you enjoy the hobby that you've made so many sacrifices to do. So as an interlude here, uh, I don't know where you live, Christian, but uh, if you ever make it down to southwest Colorado, we'd love to have you here. We <laughs> We'd love to go for a ride. It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it would be too. Yeah, I would love that. I'm in Northern Ontario and, um, you know, I hope to get to a point in this, you know, you know, when you talk about the thirds and thirds of, of life, you know, I'm getting to that stage where I'm like, I want to go and, and, and actually meet and interview and, and spend time with these incredible people and, and, and help, you know, um, educate myself, but spread the word that this is a fantastic lifestyle and industry. If if people took the time to to get to know the makers, they'd see that it's a blast. 
so on that note, I, you know, I feel we should, this is a great spot to kind of jump off and thank you for, for joining me on the Sadler's Post and sharing your stories and, um, you know, I know it's just the tip of the iceberg, uh, of who you are as, as people and makers, but, uh, I really want to thank you for, um, for sharing what you did. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, the honor has been ours. Thank you so much, Christian. Wonderful. Thank you. Hi, this is uh, Lisa Skyhorse. And this is Lauren Skyhorse, and we are Skyhorse Saddle Company, a mom-and-pop team of 50 years of saddle making. Our website is www.skyhorse.com. And it has been such a pleasure to do this podcast with Christian Lowe. This has been the Saddler's Post with Christian Lowe. Thank you for listening. The Saddler's Post is sponsored by Christian Lowe Leather Care. Visit christianlowe.ca.